Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't, today is Friday, September the 8th, 2023. Today is episode 3371, and you didn't hear, and we are live at the beginning of this one because we're not live. This is Memorex, for those old enough to remember the whole is it live or is it Memorex thing? Because it's Friday and we have the expert counsel Q&A show of the week. And that's just not something I can really readily do live. I mean, it's hard enough getting all of these uh, eccentric experts to get their content submitted in. Ken Berry, who is on, on air with us today, by the way. Um, as it is with them just recording it when they want to and sending it in. Do you imagine trying to get five or six of these people to all show up every Friday for a live stream? Yeah, I know a couple of them would, but a lot of them, like, it would be herding cats, right? So, we do the pre-recorded thing. You send in your questions for the expert council members. They answer them, send them to me, and I stitch it all together for you as your humble host. And then I put a little anchor segment from me at the end of it, and we get those expert council shows. We've been doing now, good God, I think the first expert council show we did was back in, like, 2011. I think it was before I moved to Arkansas. So we've been doing this over a decade. Here's what we got for you today. Dan McAdams is taking a rare vacation, as I describe my own when, I, when I'm not around. Uh, so Dr. Paul and Chris Rossini are, are, are teaming up on the fact that people are unwilling to comply with COVID tyranny 2.0. And that is a good thing. I'll have some additional comments on that. I actually think that they did overplay their hand. I said that the entire time. And I think there is a segment of society that will go right back into masking. But most people won't. And I think even a lot of people that went along and bought into it like now are like, uh-uh, no. And I think that can only be good for us. Despite all the other problems we have, I think they actually made this. They actually created their own detriment in this situation. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about why experts who honestly probably do know better, still do stupid shit like recommend vegan diets. Nicole, awesome sauce, will talk about getting started with home coffee roasting for a hobby business. John Pugliano will talk about important news about new annual compliance with retirement investing. Uh, old Doc Bones will talk to us about what we need to know about Vibro. What is that? Well, just when you thought it was safe to go back into the water, it wasn't the bull shark, it wasn't the great white shark, or even the barracuda that was going to get you. It was the flesh-eating bacteria. <laughs> no, really, uh, it is a thing. I think your odds are very low. Uh, you're probably more likely to die if you drive to the beach in your car on the way to the beach. If you park across the street from the beach and have to walk across the street carrying your shit, you're definitely more likely to get runned over. However, there's ways that you can increase your potential to get in a wreck and die or get run over by a car and die. And there are times where you are more potentially likely to end up with a flesh-eating bacteria, which sounds disgusting because, well, it is. And it's also life-threatening. It has a very high uh, mortality rate. 
And there are certain things that might be going on with you that you need to know that this is not the time or there needs to be extra things you need to do to protect yourself from this, and Doc Bones will talk about that. This is also a thing, and this is a saltwater thing, by the way. This is a thing that if we ever end up in that grid-down long-term scenario, you'll really need to guard against it because without modern medicine, you are in a world of hurt if you get a severe infection with this stuff. And I'm going to back clean up today. And I just had this thought today. I was listening to a bunch of young people bitch about everything. And I don't mean one group. I mean, like, I started looking at some stuff on social. And I just, like, it was the day to hear everybody bitch and whine about the plight the plight of the underserved, the underprivileged, whatever, the victims of society. And I just had this thought that came into my mind. We can never lift a group of people, a culture of people, a, a class of people, a caste of people. We can never lift them out of their victim status by declaring them permanent victims. By always referring to them as victims, by sending the message of victimhood to them, and by ingraining that victimhood in them to the point where they are ingraining it generation after generation into their own children. And this is the place we've reached, and we have actually made victimhood in our society today a, a thing that you kind of want to be a victim in some way. It's kind of, you're one of the cool kids if you're a victim, but it's still very detrimental to your psyche to believe that you are. So we have something I refer to today as the oppression Olympics, right? Everybody wants to be the bigger victim. This is counterproductive to building a strong, unified society. They can say, even if we disagree on a whole shitload of things, here's some core principles that we agree on that bind us together as a people. And when you are going to always judge people based on their race, their sex, their religion, all of those things, if we are to judge them on the, the, the color of their skin versus the content of their character, we can never live up to what we're supposed to be and what's supposed to be the free world. In fact, I don't believe we can be the free world. I don't believe we can, because we're not. Okay, This is not a free society. And this victim mentality is actually a big part of why. We'll examine that today in my anchor segment. With that, let's go ahead and dig into it. Let's hear from, uh, in this case, Dr. Ron Paul and Chris Rossini on the refusal of people and the standing up of many governors to this shit. No, we ain't doing COVID tyranny 2.0. You can't make us. Compared to what was happening before, this should not be bad because there's so many people speaking out. There's a lot of uh, evidence that uh, the, uh, the mandates are not going to come flying back. The people are wiser. Uh, but I did see even this morning that uh, I don't know if we've reached the White House because Biden says, Boy, this is serious. There's an epidemic. We better get prepared. Matter of fact, he's been preparing. They've already ordered the vaccines. That's what's so disgusting about the whole thing. And I kept thinking, they've ordered the vaccines. They probably have been delivered. They probably have gotten their money, and they don't really care if anybody gets sick or anybody gets better because the, uh, the job of uh, keeping the pharmaceutical industry uh, financially healthy, not, uh, not wise, but uh, financially they're well off. And another one that I liked was it came from the governor of uh, Mississippi. Quote, 
never going back. <laughs> Governor refuses to implement COVID mask mandate. He, so he's, he's with us all along, and he was careful and said, if you want to take them, you want to wear the mask to protect yourself, but no mandates. And it was very, very adamant. And I keep thinking that uh, he, it's great that he's uh, on target with this, but I, I know there's going to be a lot more governors that are going to say the same thing. So that's why the more the people who speak out, the more likely they're going to head this off. They're, they're willing to try it again. Matter of fact, when this was going on in the last couple of years, we often mention on this program, watch out. Their goal isn't treating patients. Their goal is power and money. And when you realize that, you figure we better stay vigilant and make sure that people have freedom of choice and not dictated by a bunch of people who don't care about honesty in anything, let alone in medicine. Right, Dr. Paul. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind that the same liars are in place. And, you know, in this case, you know, the liar is a strong word, but it is well deserved because it was all lies. You know, with the 15 days to stop, you know, the curve, whatever the heck it was, the stay home to stop the spread was a lie, the social distancing was nonsense, the masks were nonsense, the safe and effective vaccines, which we saw everywhere. I even remember seeing billboards. Well, they weren't safe and they weren't effective. So, but all the same people are still in place, whether in government, whether CDC, FDA, WHO, the media, they're all still there. You know, some of them have disappeared from sight, like Gates and Fauci and Walensky and remember Lena Wen. They'd all be on TV, and then when all, the whole thing came apart, they all scattered, and you never saw them again. Will they be back on TV, or will there be a new cast of people? You know, we don't know these things. But we have to also remember what government did, the side that they took. You know, at the very least, you know, we're libertarian. We believe in very minimal government. But at the very least, protect us against force and fraud. You know, if somebody gives you a product that does not work or that injures you or that kills you, you should be able to have recourse with the government and, uh, you know, to punish these companies. But the government gave them total immunity. So, it didn't, you know, if you died, were injured, uh, there's no recourse. That's, this is not how government is supposed to operate. I mean, even in a libertarian society, this is basic stuff. They're supposed to at least protect us against harm. But, you know, government gave, gave them immunity and they got away with it. Uh, so why? Why would anybody in their right minds listen to the same people if they tried to pull this again? Yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement. This isn't. This just isn't happening. Um, I think they may try to push it, but I think it's more of a distraction because they know it's not happening. Now, I'm not saying that some hospital systems in some really blue states or something might not virtue signal this shit and start requiring it again and all. But the mass masking, the mask, you know, the coming, trying the whole forced vaccination thing again, that'll all be guilt trip bullshit. Get a free donut or something might come back. But the, the, this shit is done. I think what Ron touched on, though, and this is my bigger issue with all of this. They're developing a new vaccine. Well, they've already, you don't develop a new vaccine in a month. They already have the new vaccine. We already paid for it. They want more money for us to continue to pay for it. These drug companies, their stocks are starting to really take a hit 
Because what hyped their stocks was, well, they're making a vaccine that everybody in the world's going to take because, well, everybody's going to die without it. You know, this is polio 2.0, but it's better because you need booster shots every year, maybe two a year. And it turned out that people realized right away, well, um, yeah, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And there is a small group, you know, and 20% of a lot of people is a lot of people, but it's not, it's not great profit on a vaccine that is complex to manufacture. Um, they, they will get every booster. I got 19 boosters now, and I got COVID for the 48th time, but my symptoms are mild or some stupid shit like that. Um, we're paying for this again. Now, I never believed it. I, I took a lot of heat from some of y'all for not believing that this was the threat that they claimed it was and blah, blah, blah. But let's say that that were true at the time, and at least the, the people that did it weren't lying malicious bastards like they were. Let's say they really believed that we needed to do this. Now, you could make a case if there was this horrific, terrible disease that was going to kill you if you looked at a picture of the virus, that spending public money to develop a vaccine for it that would be safe and effective would make sense. Okay, this shit's been in manufacture now for a couple years. We're told it's perfectly safe. We're told that the people that developed it at, you know, Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson are freaking geniuses. We owe them our very existence. We should build castles in their names. They're so smart. They're so so smart, and we need this product. So this product is necessary. It's needed. Then can't they pay for the fucking shit on their own now? Really? Why are we still funding the production of these things and the development of these things? Why? Even if you believe it, can't can't these multi-billion-dollar corporations? Do their own work at this point. And can't we say, okay, you know, this whole vaccine protection scheme developed in 1986 under President Reagan was because, please think of the children. Hey, how about this, assholes? How about so this th this is not for the children? How about you give up your, li your, your liability protection, this, this indemnity that protects you from having the shit suit out of you when somebody loses their fucking feet over your, your vaccine? No? No? Okay, then pay for your own shit. You don't get it both ways. The government, which means the people who don't want your shit, are forced to pay for your shit. And then when the people dumb enough to take your shit are harmed by your shit, you suffer no loss. Sounds like a good scam to get in on if you're a lying piece of crap to me. So this, to me, is the big... Everybody wear, They're going to make us wear masks. Well, don't wear the fucking mask and stop whining like a little bitch about it. I'm not going to complain. Then why are you crying? Then why don't you just tell them to take their mask, roll it up in a tube, and insert it into their anus, and go on with your life? Because it, they're not making you pay for your mask that you're not wearing. They're not making you pay for the mask somebody else is wearing. You can wipe your ass with it. You can throw it away. You cannot buy one. That's fine. But they are taking billions of your dollars and giving it to these parasitic bastards who have done way more harm than good with this, and they're making you pay for it. And when they end up throwing the surplus away, it won't matter because the government already paid for it. But yeah, let's worry about a mask. You see what they do? They do the same. You know why I see it? Pattern recognition. The same play all over again. Talk about doing something that gets everybody riled up, 
that you ain't going to do because you can't make them do it. And then turn around and steal their money and steal their money and steal their money and steal their money and harm people and get away with it and be protected from all the harm that you've done. Let's go on to something better, a little less blood pressure raising. Why do nutritional experts, doctors, PhDs, who actually know that what people like Ken Berry are saying is biochemically factual, continuing to recommend this garbage diet, these vegan diets, these standard American diets, when we've clearly proven there is a better way, a healthier way, a more sustainable way, and when farmed properly, a more regenerative way. Why, Ken? Why? Hey, all you survival podcast nut jobs. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Michael. Michael says, why do experts who know the food system is corrupt say that a vegan diet is better than an animal-based diet? Is this because most animal-based foods come from conventionally raised operations and not grass or pasture raised? I understand the push away from real food to things like impossible meat. I am referring to those that know that this is stupid but still recommend plant-based over animal. I'm a 46-year-old PhD student studying health science and public health. My thesis is on reversing diabetes. Ooh, huzzah. I can't wait to read that, Michael. Uh, From the soil to the disease and back to the soil. Recently, I have been on a deep dive into people like Barbara O'Neill, reading everything I can. I understand her ideas on diet, and they make a lot of sense. However, when she talks about animal protein versus plant-based protein, I feel she is black-boxing black animal protein due to the conventional process involved. Uh, yeah, it's a great question, and th- this is a very complex social problem. This is a problem that, that extends to the highest levels of government, the highest levels of nutrition science, the highest levels of public health. And that's why I don't even try to have any impact at, the, at those upper levels. I'm just, I'm just trying to change people's minds and diets one at a time. And I started with Jack Spearco, and you see where that's gone. So I think that's a powerful way of doing this, and I think it's really the only way of doing this. And here's, here's just a few of the, the, pro, the reasons that public health authorities say stupid shit like, oh, you should eat a plant-based diet. So that is, the, that is the prevailing dogma at every upper level. And I, I'm always listening to books on uh, Audible, uh, archaeology, anthropology, social science, psychology, religion, uh, many other topics. And what I find invariably is these people who are experts in their particular field, when they talk about something like diet, They'll just throw in a sentence like, well, everybody knows, you know, plant-based is best. But, and, and so you get this almost cacophony of plant-based, plant-based, plant-based. And there's just no room at the top for any alternative hypothesis right now. And I give the example, uh, just imagine if you, as a Ph.D. student, Michael, just imagine if you went to your program director and said, hey, I want to do a study uh, on I want to I want to do a study on the carnivore diet and how it can reverse disease and I'm gonna I'm gonna recruit 25 people 50 people however many and I'm gonna put them on a meat only diet. Imagine your program director's face as you're pitching your your PhD project. You're gonna see arms crossing. You're gonna see see the brow furrowing. You're gonna see them leaning back in their chair away from you. 
You're going to see them put their hand over their throat. You're going to see all this negative language because it, and it may not even be because they think what you're saying is stupid or dangerous. They may be thinking about when they go to the faculty luncheon or the faculty get together and all the other PhDs, the associate professors and the full professors, and they, and they're making chit chat and they have to tell all those guys Oh yeah, I've got a I've got a PhD student who's doing a diet where he just feeds people only meat. Can you imagine the judgment? Can you imagine the the consternation? That and so he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna poo poo that he's gonna say no that's stupid and dangerous and we're not doing that. Think of another idea. And so currently at the top it's it there is there is absolutely a glass ceiling when it comes to talking about the health benefits of eating red meat. And I don't expect that to change anytime soon. I predict it'll be anywhere from five to 20 years before somebody at one of the leading uh, public health universities or nutrition universities can actually go into their program director and say, hey, I'm going to do a diet, a, a diet experiment and try to reverse type 2 diabetes with a carnivore diet. The, it'll, it'll be anywhere from five to 20 years before the program director says, ooh, that's intriguing yeah, okay, I'll, I'll approve that. I'll be your sponsor. Let's, let's get that done and just see what it does. Currently, you couldn't even get that study approved, and you couldn't get funding for that study. So it's, it's, just, it's like any other social moray that's based on only irrationality. Nobody's going to entertain the idea, even if it's a great idea until the social moray on that idea changes. And that's exactly what we're feeling here in, in, in this community with keto and carnivore. And I think there's, there's, there are some inroads with keto right now. There, if you go to clinicaltrials.gov, there are over 400 trials going on right now using a ketogenic diet to treat many different health problems to see if it'll improve diabetes and Alzheimer's and ADHD and autism over 400 studies but to my knowledge there's not a single ongoing study of a carnivore diet and so i think keto is kind of the gateway that's going to make this because as those results start to come in it's going to going to become very quickly self-evident that gosh if you eat a proper human diet it helps people heal and get healthier and then i think that'll open the door kind of move overton's window just enough where we can start having the carnivore discussion. I hope that helps, Michael. Good luck on your studies. This is Dr. Barry. I'll talk to you guys next time. You know, is did anybody else while you're listening to that and Ken was talking about pitching it to your program director as a PhD candidate and you're going to do maybe, I don't know, you know, like PhDs have to do a dissertation, which is kind of like a private study to a degree. Uh, it has to be more than just theory. There has to be some level of let's evaluate data in it. And instead of saying, what I want to do, uh, Chief, is I want to go out and get 50 people and put them on a carnivore diet and uh, prove that it actually does things like, uh, you know, gets rid of metabolic syndrome, removes type 2 diabetes, causes weight loss, makes them healthier, causes gains in muscle mass, reduces uh, rashes and shit like that. It's just to hear me out, I, saw, I bet like half of you already know how, how statist jiu-jitsu can also be institutional jiu-jitsu here, and you know what I'm going to say, don't you? 
Well, Chief, what I want to do, I want to go out. This fad diet, I think, is really dangerous, this carnivore diet. It seems like a horrible, horrible thing for people to do. So what I want to do is get 50 people that are going to do it anyway, whether I put them on it or not. Because this is a fad diet, Chief. I mean, it's just bad shit, right? So we're going to go find these people going to do this to me. We might as well at least show them the folly of their ways. I want to give them all full panels. I want to make sure we do uh, a study that is not so targeted in on one age group. That We want like X number of people 20 to 30, X number of people 30 to 40, and X number of people 40 to 50, maybe even X number of people uh, 50 to 60. And even groups, so we can't, you know, because, you know, young people sometimes can eat burritos every day and they don't get high cholesterol. So let's make sure this is an age diversion study. And we're going to have these guys tested the day they start. And we're going to test them every two weeks with a basic blood panel. I've even come up with someone to pay for this. This is awesome. And uh, by the end of this study, we're going to do 90 days of this. We'll be able to conclusively show that it does not improve all these markers, these fad crazy people say it does. And we'll report our data. Now, you're going to get two responses to that. The person that really believes it's dangerous might say, I'm really worried about these people, but like, if they're going to do it. So you're going to be able to convince that person to do it. This is where you know you're dealing with a freaking liar. When the person comes back with, I don't think it's a good idea. You know why I don't think it's a good idea? Because I already know what the results are going to be, and they don't want those results. And I do think that the person that asked the question is on to something. A lot of these doctors, a lot of these scientists, a lot of these nutritionists, they know they're wrong. They know they're wrong. But they're inside institutions where being wrong is right and being wrong is rewarded. We live in the upside down. Let's hear about building your own thing so you don't have to deal with institutional shit. What if you are a hobby coffee roaster, and like Nicole Sauce, you see the potential to build a business there, but you just want to kind of get your feet wet and see if it's really for you. And you want to go from roasting a few ounces of coffee to roasting a few pounds of coffee and start doing it for friends and family and see where that goes. How would you get started? Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from NicoleSauce.com and Holler Roast Coffee today. I've got a question in from Michael, and this is what it is. How do you step into a home roasting business when you're not ready to invest thousands of dollars? And here's the background. I love coffee and have begun roasting my own coffee with a small home roaster. This kind of, it's kind of bottom end, but it still has enough time and temperature controls for reproducibility. Although I'm only roasting 90 grams at a time, which does not last long, the equipment has a natural lifespan, and I'd like to upgrade when the time is right. I would like to move into the range of roasting more than a pound at a time, but I wanted to be smart about approaching this side business. If you are an MSB member and you have access to previous recordings of Jack's workshop, I recommend you go back and watch the presentation I did. It was for the spring 2017 workshop where I talked about how to home roast coffee and what the income as a side hustle looked like. At that time, I had a similar, a different roaster, but about the same amount. It was doing about a half a pound at a time. And I calculated when running that just sort of in the background ongoing all week long, how many pounds I could produce 
and then multiplied that by the amount of money I was getting per pound minus COGS and highlighted what your monthly income would be as a side hustle. I also talked a little bit about where I was selling it, but it caps out, you know, around 400 bucks a month, maybe a thousand bucks a month if you really hustle and, and can get some stuff done based on sort of the home scale roasters. Probably your best bet is to look at the Behrman if you're going to roast your own coffee because it can do larger amounts, but that roaster doesn't do well going full Italian roast. So you're going to be sort of hampered by how dark you can roast it if you want to produce very dark roasts. But for the money, that roaster is the one that gets you closest to be being able to put some money in, not blow in the bank, and get enough volume that you start getting a decent side income. Plus, it's a really good home roaster. However, the technology that you're using now is air roasting, and that is drum roasting. Drum roasting coffee tastes completely different. I love air roasted coffee because it is smooth, lower acid, lower impact on the stomach, and you can... Like the flavors that come out are, in my opinion, truer to the bean than than the drum roasted coffees. Your alternative to upgrading to another sort of home scale roaster is to make your own and get a rotisserie on your propane grill, for example, and make a big old drum and you can roast more coffee that way with like a, a temperature shooting gun. I did that for a while. And you probably can get up to five pounds roasted pretty well that way. So there are options. But here's what I would ask you. Do you love coffee? Because the other thing you will see if you watch that presentation I did at Jack's is the moment I told people I was never going to go commercial and the look on my face when I realized I was lying to a room full of 80 people because that was the day I decided to go big with Holler Roast and I got my first commercial roaster. So... Maybe it's time to examine if you really want to do this. And a great way you could do that low barrier to entry is to reach out out to a roaster like myself or Food Forest Farms who do private label deals with people and start developing your sales channels, but have fulfillment done by a roaster that's already established and able to get it out the door. That doesn't mean that you don't end up roasting your own coffee long term, but it does let you test the waters to see if you have enough of a market and capacity to sell the coffee to make it something that you are willing to invest thousands of dollars into. Because here's the deal. You're never going to make that much money until you're ready to invest the thousands of dollars in the bigger equipment. In fact, my first commercial roaster did two pounds at the time, and it was a Sono Fresco which is air roasting, just like your technology. Uh, last time I looked, they were about 3500 bucks. And even with that thing going all the time, all the time, I still was like my quote-unquote full-time income with that was about $20,000 a year, which is not a big income. And that was with the roaster going all the time. When I upgraded to being able to do more than 10 pounds per roast, the money started making sense. That's the reality of the coffee business. And that's why a lot of people do start with private label arrangements so that they can 
get their market established and then get the equipment and the production facility set up. I hope this helps you take your next steps and really think about what you want to do. Guys, speaking of coffee, if you love fresh roasted coffee to order, we mail order all over the United States. There is an MSB discount for you if you are a member of TSP. And all you got to do is go to hollerroast.com, choose your coffee, and I will get those out to you. Make it a great week. So a few things on that one. When she said about the video from MSB, I was worried. There was a year where we lost the videos. It was not that year. And what we do now for the workshop, we for free live stream all the indoor presentations. Sometimes there's video of the on, hands-on stuff and the outside stuff that people publish. Sometimes I have some of it and I put it out, but we don't professionally mic people up and do the outdoor press. It's too much effort, but we have full AV, we have streaming capability, etc. So we just stream it, and this makes it to where I don't have to upload it later or whatever. When we're done, it's done. So going since three years ago, I think, at least two years ago, I just want you to know on my YouTube channel are playlists for every one of them. Back when we did this one, it was a manual process, and I did make it MSB only. There's actually three years' worth of stuff in the MSB. If you are a member and you've never checked, if you go to the survival or you go to the member support brigade and log in and go to the videos page, you'll see three seasons of workshops, videos that are published, and you can get access to them from there. I decided for this one, I was going to make it available to everybody. So what you need, it's on Vimeo, and there's an access code to it. The code is 14789. Don't write it down. Don't worry about it. Just go to the show notes today and look for in the bullet points, um, Nicole Sauce's segment. You'll see a link to the video, and the code's written right there for you. So if you want to watch it, you can. Now, on the um, on the brand, I texted Nicole. She has her own life. If she gets back to me before I finish recording day, I'll up you. I asked her if it was Berman or, or whatever, and it sounded like she said Burmore. And so I, I started looking for a coffee roaster in the $400 range that sounded like that. I found a place called Berman Coffee Traders, but I don't think they're the manufacturer. I think they're a reseller. They have a, a coffee roaster, uh, Bemore, which I think is what she said, 2000 AB plus with a bunch of free coffee comes with it for $479. I'm going to link to that with the caveat that I'm not absolutely certain that that's the coffee roaster that she's talking about to kind of get past roasting, you know, a quarter pound, a half a pound at a time and, and, and seeing if you, if you want to do this at a higher level. Anyway, um, I think that's the one. It looks, it looks honestly a lot like a microwave oven, uh, with a whole bunch of settings on it. And uh, I, I was looking as I was listening to her segment. I think that's what she said. If I hear back from her by text message before I finish and render out today's show uh, during somewhere near the close, I'll update you on that. With that, let's move on now to some things that you need to know about retirement uh, planning and compliance with certain types of accounts uh, due to something called the SECURE Act and some other things that are supposed to go into effect soon in a way. Anyway, with that, John Pugliano. Hello, TSP. Well, I've got some timely information for you as we get into September. This is the time of year that I like to review my own personal finances as well as the accounts of my clients to make sure 
that we've addressed and taken care of any annual type compliance issues. You know, this is everything from making sure that retirement contributions have been made or backdoor Roths, Roth conversions, HSA contributions, reporting of solo 401k amounts, or required minimum distributions have been taken. I mean, the list is endless and it keeps getting longer. That's what I want to touch on today. A number of new regulations have come through the system. One of them is called the SECURE Act. It went into effect on January 1st of 2020. There's a new version of that aptly named SECURE Act 2.0, and it's scheduled to take effect in January of 2024. However, there's been a number of mishaps and missteps with it. One of the issues that had a major glitch in it is the requirements being imposed on high-income individuals that are over age 50, where catch-up contributions could only be contributed to a Roth 401k. Well, that issue has become such a lightning rod and is such a cluster of confusion as to how it would actually be applied and implemented that that has all been postponed. And when the Congress wrote that rule, they also mistakenly left out catch-up contributions for all individuals. And so that's having to be rewritten in. And bottom line is most or all of the SECURE Act 2.0 is such a goat rope that it's being delayed and won't be implemented in 2024. So if you've heard that all these requirements are coming out in January of next year, take a step back, take a deep breath, talk to your financial advisor and your tax expert, because most or all of those things are not going to come into effect. And in fact, what I really want to touch on today has to do with the original SECURE Act going all the way back to 2020, and that's in regards to the change that was made in reference to inherited IRAs. Now, this applies to required minimum distributions on non-spousal inherited IRAs. So if your spouse died and you inherited their IRA, this doesn't apply. But for all other inherited IRAs, where the decedent passed away after January 1st of 2020, there were new rules as part of the SECURE Act that imposed required minimum distributions, which in some cases had to be taken out annually, and in other cases didn't require an annual minimum distribution, but imposed a requirement that all the money had to be withdrawn within a 10-year period. Now, these rulings were so convoluted and confusing to both laymen and professionals that they've been continually under review and updated, and the scrutiny and criticism has come to such a head that the IRS is not penalizing any individuals for failing to take a distribution over the period of years from 2020 all the way through 2023. So for those of you that have inherited a non-spousal IRA, and incidentally, an IRA in this case refers to all aspects of an IRA. So that could be a rollover IRA, a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, a simple IRA, or a SEP IRA. And this is really important because of the number of deaths that have occurred not only since COVID, but also the fact that so many baby boomers are coming to the end of their life. And in fact, if you listen to my podcast, you've heard me talk about the great inheritance period that we're currently going through, where we're going to see the greatest transfer of wealth coming from the baby boomers to the Gen X and the millennials. That's going to have some major economic repercussions, and I think we'll create a number of opportunities. But in any case, I digress there. 
Hey, bottom line, if you or someone you know over the last four years has inherited money from an IRA, just know that for now the rules are so murky that they're in limbo and there's no exact time frame as to how all this is going to be finalized. So at least through the end of 2023, you don't have to worry about it. And if you unknowingly didn't comply in previous years going back to 2020, you won't be penalized for not taking a required minimum distribution. And just in case you're not aware of that, required minimum distributions, if they're not taken, are penalized with an excise tax of 50%. And oh, by the way, the SECURE Act 2.0 is reducing that penalty down to maybe 25 or 10%, but again, there's no clarity on that. And so we're just going to have to wait to find out. Well, in any case, I know it comes as no surprise to members of this audience how convoluted and confusing these rules and regulations are. And so, as always, I'm here to take your questions. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Standing Podcast. All right, folks, as always, great stuff from John. A little shout-out here right now to y'all. Uh, I need questions for the expert council. I'm low on content for next week. Some of these guys will spin up their own content when you don't ask, and some of them don't. If you've been wanting to get a question answered by the expert council, um, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC expert in the subject line. Ask your question in a single sentence with a question mark at the end of it. Then hit return, and then give me any amount of, uh, of minute minutiae detail that you want. Don't start with detail. Start with a one-line, one-sentence question. And what this will do is allow the expert and myself and you to know exactly what your answer, your question is, so they can give you the best answer possible. And uh, trust me, it just works better that way. Tell me who the question is for if you have an idea. If you're not sure which expert's best, you can leave it to me, but it's kind of better if you angle it toward one of them. Uh, I need questions for everybody at this point. Everybody. Uh, the one person with a pretty big backlog of questions is Ken Berry. Uh, everybody else is pretty low on questions to answer, so the more I can give them, the more I can shake the piker tree, and the more great content like this I can get for you. On that note, I'll tell you an expert counsel person who I send him a question, and if it's if it's not back in 24 hours, I literally send him an email going, dude, are you okay? Because he's that dedicated to serving this audience, and that's Doc Bones from Doom and Bloom. And uh, that's who's up next. And this wasn't a question. This was just him taking the initiative to let you know about something. Flesh-eating bacteria. It sounds gross because it is. And it's also very dangerous. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I want to talk to you about a crater that can cause death that's in the marine waters. I'm not talking about sharks. I'm not talking about jellyfish, stingrays. I'm talking about stuff that's much, much smaller. I'm talking about flesh-eating bacteria. Indeed, several deaths linked to this rare flesh-eating bacteria have been reported in various parts of the U.S. this year. There are two people in Connecticut that were infected with a bacterium known as Vibrio vulnificus. And that occurred after swimming. Another person was infected after eating raw oysters and getting the infection. In Florida, it's actually worse. State health officials in Florida report 20 to 30 cases a year. 
26 this year, of something called necrotizing fasciitis, which is the lethal infection that's caused by the bacteria. Nine of those people have died. If you're not familiar with the infection, you should be, actually, because this is something that you have to know how it spreads and how to be safe in areas where the bacteria exists. The Connecticut cases were in two adults between 60 and 80 years old who died after being infected by the Rio Vulnificus in July. They were apparently exposed to salt or brackish water, a mixture of fresh and salt water is called brackish water, in Long Island Sound. Both had cuts or wounds where the bug could have entered their body. Now, a third non-fatal case appeared to have occurred when the person ate raw oysters that were not harvested locally. Necrotizing fasciitis from Vibrio falnificus doesn't just affect old people, although they're most likely to die from an infection. Anyone with an open wound can get it from contaminated water. So what exactly is Vibrio? Vibrio is a family of bacteria, which includes a pathogen that causes cholera. But Vibrio valnificus, that's a different critter altogether. It normally occurs in warm brackish water, usually in areas like the Gulf of Mexico. But it can be found in higher concentrations up north from May to October when the weather is warmer. Common symptoms if ingested from raw shellfish include cholera-like symptoms, though, like watery diarrhea, stomach cramps, vomiting, fever, and chills, things like that. Infected wounds, however, they look like an infected wound. They're red, swollen, painful, and symptoms usually occur very fast, usually within 12 to 24 hours, and they can last one to seven days in mild cases and much longer and cause major problems in severe cases. There are two known routes, entering the body through open wounds, when a person swims, waves, or walks in warm marine waters, or, of course, oral contamination. So why is infection with Vibrio vulnificus called a flesh-eating disease? That's because if they enter through an open wound, it causes the flesh around it to die, and then travels through the bloodstream to other parts of the body. And such a condition can require intensive care or even limb amputations. About one in five people with the infection die, usually within a short time of becoming ill. Now, there was a young girl named Amy Copeland who got it when she fell from a zip line in Georgia about a decade ago. She sustained the laceration on her thigh that required 22 sutures, well, actually staples, sorry, to be closed. Now, unfortunately, closing the wound sequestered this vibrio organism in her soft tissues, and that led to the flesh-eating bacteria traveling to different parts of her body. And She ended up with both hands amputated and parts of both legs. I mean, this is serious stuff, folks. So what's the treatment? People with less severe stomach infections from ingesting, let's say, raw shellfish, usually recover on their own. If you experience diarrhea, you should drink plenty of fluids. That's very important. But for severe cases, a doctor will usually provide antibiotics. Infections in wounds from Vibrio vulnificus, well, those usually need to be treated in an intensive care setting. Off the grid, there's probably not much you can do if that actually occurs. Can you prevent the Vibrio infection? Well, if you have an open wound, including scrapes, cuts, recent tattoos, piercings, things like that. Avoid swimming, walking, or wading in warm marine waters on the East Coast or the Gulf of Mexico. If you do go in the water, keep any wound covered with a waterproof bandage and wear proper foot protection to prevent cuts or scrapes from rocks or shells. Health officials suggest avoiding direct contact with something called sargassum. That's the floating algae that's washed ashore in places such as the Florida Keys because it contains the pathogen. That's called sargassum, S-A-R-G-A-S-S-U-M, like the seaweed. You should not consume raw oysters or other raw shellfish that are taken from warm coastal waters during the summer months. Instead, cook them, cook oysters, clams, mussels, things like that thoroughly. You want to boil shucked oysters for at least three minutes or fry them in oil for at least 10 minutes at 375 degrees. That's according to the Florida Health Department. You should wear gloves, by the way, when handling raw shellfish and thoroughly wash your hands with soap and water when you're done. 
Luckily, there's no evidence of Vibrio's necrotizing fasciitis is transmissible from person to person. It's not contagious. Strangely enough, people who take stomach acid-reducing drugs like Prilosec, Pepsin, and others may be at increased risk because stomach acid helps kill harmful germs. There's apparently a connection, by the way, between hurricanes and Vibrio infections. Health officials have observed spikes of cases during and after floodings from hurricanes in the Gulf region. Floodwaters are indeed badly contaminated. In 2022, there were 38 cases and 11 deaths attributed to Vibrio vulnificus and the storm, despite public health messages on the importance of avoiding contact with floodwaters, particularly for those people with open wounds. Spikes in cases also occurred during Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and Hurricane Irma in 2017. That's according to the CDC. So you shouldn't be afraid to get in the water, but be aware that there are things in there that can cause problems. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, learn more about infection and 200 other off-grid medical topics in the award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. And get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Now, that was probably something you didn't want to know, but it's probably better that you do. With that, let's jump into my discussion today. It's going to be a brief one, for me anyway. Um... I just wanted to kind of expand on this idea. I mean, I've talked about this before, but I don't know if I've ever dedicated a specific segment or show to it. But I don't believe we can ever lift up a group of people, a culture, a class, a race, and any way that you would divide people into a collective group. I don't believe they can ever be lifted, if even if they are victims of something, or have been victims historically of something, I don't believe they can truly be lifted up to a level that would be where you'd want them to be, which is equal with others, if we permanently create a victimhood around them. And kind of in part with a show I did earlier this week about how we're so divided and how we're so controlled and how we're so screwed economically... There's a reason you would do this if you were in power and in control. Now, there's also a dynamic at play that's utilized by the people in power. We'll get to that in just a second. But if I'm in power, if I am ruling and lording over the Western world, if I am a member of the high-level political class or the banking class or the oligarchical class, then I do not want a strong, unified people to rule over and to control. This is the worst thing in the world for me because strong unified people are like, we don't need you to go piss off somewhere else. And if you push them too far, they will kick your ass physically, verbally, what have you, whatever is necessary at the time, they will unify and they will kick your ass. There are so many more of us than them that we will represent in their minds at all times, a threat to not our way of life, but their way of life. What if the ruffians get a little bit upset with us and they revolt? Don't worry, we'll send the troops to put them down. But the troops are them, Marco. Don't you think, I know we will divide them. And that is, so division is at the heart of control. It always has been. There is never, I defy you to show me a tyrant that didn't leverage division to their end, even if you would think of them as like a unifying tyrant, like a Mao Zedong. Right? There were 
definitely classes of people that could, so China for China and blah 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 okay fine but there were many classes of people that were made to be the enemy Nazi Germany had the Jews the gypsies and, and honest to God uh, Nazi Germany had a, a, a whole litany that, that gets beyond the gypsies and the Jews that we don't talk about right so like all the, Slo the Slovakians were considered subhuman Right, so you always have division, whether it's violent or whether it is more modern, more sophisticated government mafiaism, you use division. Yeah, so that's why they would do it. But why does it work so well? It will, and, and the fact that it works so well is why they do it. Because there is a certain psychological thing in, that will make people embrace victimhood. See, if I'm a victim, I don't have to acknowledge my own failure. It's not my fault. Somebody else did it. Right. If I am a miserable, horribly upset person with my life, I've gotten nowhere. I'm in my 40s. I know my prime working years are really behind me at this point. I have no skill. I've developed nothing. I live in shit and squalor. Well, I'm pretty receptive to the fact that it's not my fault. Because we're not big on admitting our own faults as a being, as humans, I mean. right? Now, I'm not talking about any of these groups. I'm not the one that puts people in groups. I'm the one that says, I don't want to see the group. I don't want to know the group. You know, if I'm interviewing somebody for a job, the only reason I compare, care about their appearance is because, like, if they're going to work in food service, they can't look disgusting like they don't take a bath. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what sex they are. I don't care who their boyfriend or girlfriend is. I don't care. Don't bring your shit to work, and I don't care what it is. I mean, it's that simple. But the groups love this, and the people controlling you love this. But if you take any group of people and you create the message to that group of people that it's not your fault you are a victim, and you do it in such a way that it becomes generationally handed down, we're the victim, we're the victim, we're the victim, we're the victim, you will inherently hobble and cripple that group. Now, there will be the people that, there's about 5% of people, in my opinion, in the world, I don't care if they're five years old when you start doing it. If you tell them they can't do something and they want to do it, they're like, well, fuck you. I'm going to prove you wrong, and I'm going to go do it. So out of that group, that class, that culture, you will have people that become incredibly successful. Okay, And then what you do to control that and not let it out of hand, you create special programs to enable those people to become incredibly successful. And what that does is it damages the value of the people that did it on their own because everybody's like, oh, they were an affirmative action hire or a diversity hire. So you see what I'm saying? And then you actually take some really incompetent morons and you use those programs to actually put them up at these positions. And then again, you further devalue it. You take a whatever he is that steals luggage, dresses halfway like a woman, halfway like a man, and has dudes in leather suits that he has sex with, and you put him in charge of nuclear waste for the United States, and he has absolutely no idea what nuclear waste even is. And then this damages an entire class of people. And even if it's a different class, it's still, oh, it's a diversity hire. You see what I'm saying? This is how you control a population. This is what's being done to you right in front of your face. And then you further split the camps because the camp that's not about this shit, right? The camp that's like, bullshit, war, pull yourself up by your... They are the ones that are most subjectable to this idea, oh, oh, see, all these people that succeed, they were just made successful. They don't recognize 
enough value in the people that made themselves successful as well. And they become very resentful of this entire group, and they start lumping everybody in the group into the group, even though many people in the group are like, no, fuck that, I'm not part of this shit. Right? I'm going to do for myself, and I don't care who you are either as far as your color or your race or your sex or whatever. I don't care. But their, their voices get drowned out. And then there's this clamoring to be, again, I call it the oppression Olympics. I am oppressed. South Park did a great thing with, uh, like, they're, they're busting off on the DNA tests. And, like, the dude's like, I thought I was just a random white guy, but I found out I was 18% Cherokee. Who's cool now, right? Like, there's this desire. You know, I'm a 10th Cherokee. I'm a 5th black. I'm a 5th Mexican. Whatever. Like, you know, like this idea that if I just have some heart in me be part of this oppressed group, that I'm somehow better. See how sick and twisted this is? But think about the psyche. person grows up in whatever group has been generationally conditioned to believe they're a victim. They're not part of the 5%. This is F you, I will do it anyway. And they, But they have a tremendous potential. They're smart. They have a good work ethic. They really want to be something. But they're subject, you know, they're like 95% of people that if they're told something from very young, they believe it. If that person even goes through school, gets good grades, gets into college, does really well, gets a degree in something meaningful and goes into a career path. I promise you, 95% of those people that even get there will never realize their full potential because they will limit themselves because they subconsciously, if not consciously, believe themselves to be a member of a victim class. So how do we bring people up? And how do we do that and acknowledge that some classes, some groups, some cultures, etc. of people have been victims in the past and maybe to some degree still are victimized today? You challenge them to not be victims. That's how. You set a bar above what they believe they can do, and then you tell them, I know you can get there. And if you do that, you start to have these, because these groups are groups in some way. They do have unique cultures or unique identities and stuff. And they start to have you know, pride in who and what they are. And not fictitious pride, not fake pride, right? Real pride. Like, yeah, I'm part of this culture, and I'm also part of this larger culture. If you're in America, I am part of, I have this unique culture. But I also am an American, and I'm an American first. And this larger culture is important, and I don't have to take my other culture, my, if you want to call it subculture of America, because we are supposed to be a melting pot. All right? We're not supposed to be vulcanized. We're supposed to be a melting pot. And I don't have to discard where my family's from or what my family's all about. My family's Ukrainian. And I look back with a great deal of affection at like the way our Sunday dinner after church was different from my friends who were, let's say, Polish. Even though they were very similar, there were some unique differences to them. I... I look the few words in Ukrainian I know I, I value those things but I'm still you know I was born here I've built my whole life here this and I have an identity as well with Texas right beyond just American even though I was born in Jersey and grew up in Pennsylvania and Florida I've lived here and I built my the part of my life I built that I I built for me was mostly almost 100% done right here 
And so you can have like a group that you value membership in or association with without casting off everything else. And we really can judge people on the content of their character versus the color of their skin. And most Americans today, right or left, right or left, want to. And want to, even when they don't fulfill it, want to is such a gain over where we were not so long ago. These young people today that are out shrieking and screaming about racism this and sexism that and blah, 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 you have no fucking idea what you're talking about. In the 1970s and 80s, when I was alive and paying attention, this shit was actually a real problem, not a fabricated one. This was actually happening right in front of you in the open blatantly. One thing the left is right about, it did not all end in 1865, of course it didn't. And it did not all end in 1969 either. This is a stain on America, some of the things that were done as far as violations of civil rights. But we've come so far, so why do we keep screaming, shrieking, and playing around with victimhood? Because it's beneficial to the people in power. That's why. To admit that we have succeeded, even let's say 90% of where we need to be, would mean, okay, great, let's power forward, let's go do some other shit. Let's, but then you got to give up this incredible... And so instead of letting the division go, when most people have passed it, instead of doing that, we created new divides. Now we have the, the belief that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. Accepting someone and saying, oh, okay, you want to live as a woman, fine. No, you have to use the right pronouns. Okay, fine, you're a she. No, I'm a they, them. Like, this has gotten so stupid. And there's only one explanation for it. They want the division because the division leads to control. You want a group, a culture, any segment of society to be treated as equals, start out by calling them equals. Don't refer to them as inferior or superior in any way. And this has been, our children's minds have been warped. When you listen to these young girls, these young white girls are the worst about it. I don't want to date a white guy. Is your mirror broken, bitch? Really? Are you this stupid? And the answer to the question, are you this stupid, is of course, yes. And again, stupidity in the form of Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words at the beginning and during the freaking World War II. That the, the most dangerous people in society are the stupid people. Because they And not intellectually slow, but people who have been made and programmed by the system to behave stupidly. This is where we are. This is where we are. And usually I don't point to a pro problem without giving you a solution. But this solution, much like Ken Berry mentioned, is individual. And what I am very encouraged by, I have seen, specifically from the black community... A tremendous number of young black men and women, but seems like really men, standing up and saying things very similar to what I'm saying. Every single one of those for that community is worth a hundred of me because they will be listened to differently. It's okay to acknowledge some differences. 
as long as we don't infer that those differences make some, somebody inferior or superior. We are not inferior or superior because of the color of our skin or what religion we practice or who we choose to have sex with or not have sex with. Right? As long as it's consenting adults anyway. You have sex with children, you know where I think you need to be. Deep in the ground. Deep enough that when you rot, no one will smell your corpse. And we don't need to kill you before we bury you. Once we start pushing the dirt in, things will take care of themselves. Otherwise, no one really cares and no one should care. But there is a concept of superior and inferior in all walks of life with all people. I am not as good of a basketball player as Michael Jordan, just to make it completely obvious. Okay, When Jordan's using a walker, if I'm a bit younger than him, I probably won't be yet. He'll probably still be a better basketball player than me. He could probably beat me with a walker. If he could go ahead in time to where he had to use a walker to get around and play me today at 51, I would probably still lose, okay? So there is no problem with the fact that some people are better than other people at certain things. There are carpenters who can do woodwork, and I'm a decent woodworker. I can't even imagine putting the time in to become as good as them. And you can just do anything with that. I am inferior in so many ways to so many people. And I am superior to many people in many other ways. And so are you. And when you talk about diversity being strength, that's actual diversity being strength because there is no diversity when it comes to race in humanity. We are all homo sapiens. Period. There's no diversity. There is no diversity. It's like looking at a group of kittens... And saying it's diverse because they have different color fur. It's that stupid. And it needs to stop. This went longer than I planned, so I'm going to let it go there. Just my thoughts on the fact that we can never rise, bring a, pe a group of people, a culture of people, any segment of society up by labeling, labeling them victims permanently so when it's done, you know it's done with malice and intent and planning by the people in power. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. I will be back on Monday with another episode. want to remind you guys, one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do is just do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll find all the items that I recommend. And uh, I just realized I don't have the item of the day at the top of the stack where it belongs, so I will fix that as soon as I finish recording. But today's item of the day is actually a deal of the day. It's the WEN, that's W-E-N, inverter generator, 2,000 watt inverter generator. And it is on sale today for $339. How good is this generator? It is a good generator for what it is. 2,000 starting watts, 1,600 running watts. In other words, that's quite a bit of power. It is pretty quiet. 51 decibels at 20 feet. A normal conversation is about 60 decibels. Now, let me tell you something about generators. When I say that, they always give that spec when that generator is running at 50% of output. Okay, So when you really put draw on it, obviously the motor works harder and the sound gets louder. But that's still awesome. It'll run about 9 hours on a tank of gas and it is normally 500 bucks and it's on sale today for $339. This is 
the end of summer storm season and the beginning of fall hurricane season heading into winter storm season. You see what I'm saying? If you do not have a generator and you can't afford a larger generator than this, then get this one. If you already have a larger generator than this, but you don't have a smaller one, you should really consider two is one and one is none here and pick one of these up. This is one of the best generators in its class for the money that you will find. And when it is on sale, it is a fantastic deal. It also has the ability to work with a parallel kit. I have information on that in the write-up. And uh, you can run two of them. So for far less than the cost of, let's say, one Honda E2000i, you can have two of these that have the same output power as the one 2000i. If one blows up and explodes and is stolen by space aliens and you can't fix it, you are still ahead and you still have a lot of money left over. You can get a parallel kit and run two of them together if you want more power, and they can still work separately when you need them to. They're lightweight, easy to start. It is a great piece of kit for the money. If I was going to rely daily on a generator, like I had a solar system off-grid, and every day I was topping my equipment off, I would go to a higher quality generator. As an emergency generator, a camping generator, a tailgating generator, you can't beat this thing for the money. So check it out today. Again, the WEN 2000, WEN WEN 2000 inverter generator on sale for $339, including shipping right to your front door. You can find it at T-SPAD. You can find it at the Survival Podcast. You can find it in the show notes. It's in the Daily Mail. It went out on social media, blah, 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 blah. Stay connected with me one way or another. You'll never miss stuff like this, especially when they're deals. This one I don't think will happen. It's a pretty big company. Stock looks pretty good on it right now. But I'm going to tell you, there are days that I put out an item of the day that's on like a special price or something, and before I record the show, it's gone. I put it out through all my channels, and there's like you know, 25 of them in stock. And before I even get to tell you about it, they're all sold out. So you want get on the... I would tell you the number one way to stay connected and not have some filtered bullshit keep you from seeing what I have to let you know. Get on my Telegram channel. There's a, there's a link to it in every episode's show notes. You get on the Telegram channel. The group is where everybody talks, and it's really there's a lot of stuff going on. And you can get in that if you want to. That's why we set it up. If you get on my channel, you're going to get four or five alerts a day maximum from me. You're going to get like the deal of the day, notification of us going live, notification that the show is live, and maybe one other thing. And it's just like in a text message. If you you hate it, you can unsubscribe. Uh, But if you get on there, you won't miss stuff like this. The last thing, reminder, not tomorrow, next Saturday, the fall workshop goes on sale. 0930 Central Standard Time. The clamoring I'm hearing from the natives, right, the regulars, about, hey, are you sure? Like, there is excitement over this one, and there's a lot of reasons for it, and it's going to sell out in minutes, not hours, so don't miss your opportunity. Generally, it works like this. It sells out pretty quick. One year was a ridiculous year. It was 2020 when everybody wanted to go do something. It sold out in two minutes. I had a, a wait list of like 80 people on that one. Generally, it sells out somewhere between 10 and 30 minutes. Which means anybody that really, really wants to come can. If you've never been before, I invite you to consider coming. Check out what we're going to be doing because the people you will meet are worth coming in of itself. With that, I'll catch you Monday with another episode. It's been Jack Spirico with another episode of The Survival Podcast. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They say-
Dollar down, a dollar a month. 